0: Hi, this is Peter Asher.
1: And this is Jeremy Clyde,
0: And you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast
1: with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome. To the follow your dream podcast everybody welcome to another episode of the follow your dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries i'm robert miller your host i am honored today to have as my guest rod argent of the zombies one of the greatest bands of the british invasion era of the 1960s they had massive hits with She's Not There and Tell Her No, and later with Time of the Season, all written by Rod. And they had a sound and a sophistication that was unlike any other band at that time, mainly due, in my opinion, to Rod's outstanding keyboard work. And a whole lot of people must agree with me because the Zombies were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. After the Zombies disbanded, Rod formed Argent, and he had another massive hit with Hold Your Head Up, on which he played an iconic Hammond organ solo. He went on to play with The Who, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Ringo, among others. And he also recorded a classical music album. And he and his longtime partner, Colin Blundstone, have a new Zombies album coming out soon, called different game we're going to play a couple of cuts from that album he is truly a man for all seasons and as you know in the middle of this episode as i do with all my musical guests rod and i are going to do what i call a song fest we're going to play a bit of his greatest hits we're going to talk about them you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts and you also know that in every episode of this podcast i like to feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Waiting For Me from my new album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade, that just came out recently. And I chose this song because it's got a real 60s vibe led by the keyboards, just like Rod has led his bands on the keys. So, Rod Argent, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
0: Oh, bless you, Robert. That's fantastic. Thank you.
1: Well, it's fantastic to have you on the show. You know, I came of age musically in the 60s when the zombies were and all the British invasion bands were out there in force. And then I segued into the whole jazz rock era of the 70s. And to me, you and the zombies were a bridge between those two eras.
0: Would you agree? Well, I guess in a way we probably were, and it wasn't. It wasn't conscious. I mean, the thing was that I grew up loving classical music until I got turned on to rock and roll by when I was eleven years old by hearing Elvis sing Hound Dog, and for me that was a way of first of all hearing black music by proxy because I'd never heard any rhythm and blues or any re- really black artists, but it led me to play records by. Well, first of all, Big Mama Thornton, because that was her original hound dog, but then Ray Charles very quickly, and and I love Ray's playing. But I was st- at that time, even though I was still loving Elvis Presley, I was I was absolutely in love from the age of about fourteen with the early Miles Davis group with uh, Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley and Red Garland and later Bill Evans, which uh, I, I just absolutely loved. And the first record that I could afford to buy. By Miles was milestones. It was an EP, and I didn't realize that that was his first foray into modal music. I had absolutely no idea, but I never thought of introducing any of that into what I thought we were—a simple rock and roll band. But it was just there, and and I was still listening to classical music and stuff as well. In the early TV coverage in the states um, of "She's Not There," when it came to the the piano solo—they didn't understand that at all. I mean, rock and roll was guitar groups, and uh, when it got to a piano solo, they just showed the drums, you know. So the camera went completely off me.
1: I have to tell you, when you started out with that little introduction to "She's Not There," the bass and the keys—yeah—I mean, it just set the tone for the song. And you're right; the solo was so different for that era. As I said in my introduction, it was so much more sophisticated than so much of the rock and roll that was being played at that time. It was so different, and I congratulate you for it. It was spectacular.
0: Well, being fairly selfish, I always used to, when we did all our live stuff, I always used to improvise a lot. And, and I would always put, a, in anything that I wrote, I would have a piano solo, you know. <laughs> and the thing was, it was genuine improvisation. I mean, if you hear... Uh, some of the early outtakes of uh, She's Not There. You'll, you'll hear the solo is completely different on each one. So, it, it, you know, it wasn't a constructed solo. It was just imp- improvised. And, and that was because I was listening to so much jazz at the time and, and I just loved it. But at the same time, I, I still love the early raw rock and roll of Elvis. And, of course, when The Beatles started two years before America in 62 in in the UK... Like everybody else there, I was completely blown away with the sort of honesty of their playing, etc. cetera. And, and I loved that too. So I was a complete conglomeration of, of things, even though I thought we were just, in a way, being the Beatles sort of thing. But I didn't realise until later when I remember, I think the Birds were the first people that I read who said, Rod Argent's solo in, in uh, She's Not There really formed our way of playing eight miles high he said because you know with, with all those all those sort of uh, jazz improvisation things and i thought I, I couldn't hear that at all between the two of us but he said it and and uh, and other people have said it since so i'm very very grateful but it was a natural thing
1: You know, what you're describing, though, is exactly the way that musicians should evolve because you had different influences and you melded those influences into what became your playing. Now, I was going to ask you a question when you said on She's Not There, you didn't have a constructed solo. And so many of the solos back in the 60s, they were constructed. You know, when George Harrison did a solo, every time they played that song in concert, he'd repeat that solo. And he did marvelous solos. But I'm interested. When you guys played around the world, when you played "She's Not There," did you play the same solo, or did you do an improvisation?
0: It was. It was in those days. It was always just an improvisation because, I mean, there was no. I did. I didn't have the patience to go and and analyze it note for note and to replay it. <laughs> um, but it's very interesting because having played things for so many years, in the end they become the sort of same construction. But I always try and do something a little bit different because we've got a band that really listens to each other. And, and if I go somewhere slightly different, they're with me immediately. And, and that's so lovely. And, and that's, that, that's another link with the, you know, the great jazz groups because that, that's what everyone does. They listen and, and they sympathize and they bounce off each other. Uh, so that's very important, I think.
1: Now, when you recorded back in the 60s, I'm assuming that you guys were all in the studio essentially playing live together. Am I right? Yeah. Because that's changed, of course. Over time, you know, people record and they do note by note and instrument by instrument. I always felt, and with my group, that's this is what I do, you put a band that's well rehearsed in a studio and you get that live sound, that interaction that you're talking about, which makes the whole thing work.
0: I really feel that and and it really came home to me. I've done lots of record production and I've had some big successes with other artists producing records and I've done everything that you've said. I've done things remotely. I've done the thing where you lay one track and then the next and then the next and use the whole of studio technology. I felt the band had never been playing so well up until the point we got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and we really wanted to repeat that experience uh, in the studio.
1: I have to ask you a question about back then. I've asked all the guys that were part of the British invasion more or less the same question. What was it like back then? Did you have the whole screaming girls thing going on? And tell me what your impressions are now. It's 50 plus years later.
0: Uh, it's It was quite extraordinary at the beginning. I mean, we were 18 years old. Um, and I think probably that was... No, we were just 19 when we first came to America um, and played on the Murray the K Brooklyn Fox show. Um, You know,
1: I think I saw you in that show. Okay, Who else was? Well, I went to see a Murray the K show. Now, it wasn't in the Brooklyn Fox. It was in New York. It was in a New York City, a Manhattan theater. But he had those shows and he had like a great lineup in these shows. And I remember the show that I saw, the two acts at the bottom of the bill were the Who and the Cream? That's, that's <laughs> the, the cream. way they were built. <laughs> Wonderful. So you were on one of those shows, huh? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. We were on the 1964 show, um, and we were just coming off a number one record. We were scared stiff. We were we were five skinny young white boys who came in, and we thought that we were just copying black rhythm and blues or whatever, you know, whatever we were copying, and we thought. And, and we realized that we were playing with some of our heroes, and, and we were playing with Benny King and the Drifters, we were playing with Patty LaBelle. In fact, we were on when we did the sound check, it was a, we immediately followed Patty LaBelle, and I was scared silly because I thought they're going to hate us and they're going to completely shun us. But the opposite was true. But then, as you said, you know, like 19 years old, you go to America, you're doing what is a dream. Because, you you know, with your first song, pretty much, it was the second song I ever wrote, uh, we we had a number one record in the States. And I remember just eight years before hearing Elvis in... um, I think it was eight years before, anyway. Uh, I've probably got that completely wrong. But um, singing Hound Dog and being so knocked out of thinking... I, I was 11 thinking I've got to be part of this in some way or other, but there's no way anybody English can come anywhere near what they're doing. We we only just barely understand what we're listening to, you know. And then just eight years later, I found out at that time, and I didn't realise this until the 90s, when I was speaking to um, an Elvis freak who was a DJ in Ireland. He said, I can't believe you didn't know that Elvis had three of your songs on his jukebox and i thought no what ridiculous turn around but apart from that as you say it's a dream because all all that you didn't have to try all the young girls all the beautiful young girls wanted to know you you know it was a, it was a, a late teenage dream i mean a complete dream
1: i've spoken about this with other guys that were part of that whole british invasion thing and the irony is that you took american music that was overlooked The blues were basically an overlooked genre in America. You brought it back to England, you redid it, and you gave it back to the US, and it worked in that context.
0: And do you know who was largely responsible, I believe, rather than the Rolling Stones? I believe it was the Beatles right at the beginning because they opened the whole scene for people in the UK to react to, um, and, and, and particularly with Motown. And, and the black artists that were in Motown at the time, because they came from Liverpool, which was a port, and, and all the merchant seamen used to sail into New York, and they would listen to all the jazz, that the wonderful jazz that was still going on there. I mean, seminal people with nobody in the clubs by that time. I, I remember seeing the Rolling Stones just before we turned professional, and I remember, go, and it was just before their first record came out, Come On, the Chuck Berry record, uh, and I remember us all being in this little club that were, it held 50 people and they were all sitting down on stools. Jagger wasn't moving around at all. He was sitting on a the stool. They were doing real purist in their eyes. Not so much Muddy Waters, but m- mostly Chuck Berry. But, yeah, but all all, all blues things. And they sounded fabulous. I, in fact, that's the best I ever heard them in, in, in my memory anyway.
1: Got off the stool eventually, I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um it was it was just brilliant and i think the beatles were responsible for opening the scene to that yes and then of course in the states you tended with a few exceptions of having very categorized radio stations so you had race stations you know and and the white kids, generally speaking, would only listen to the white stations, and the black kids generally would only listen to the black stations. So it was all separated. It was in the UK, it was a big melting pot, and that was so, so great for us, I think.
1: Well, you're right, because I grew up in New York City. I've told this story before. We had three stations on the AM dial that played rock and roll. And Murray the K, who you mentioned before, was the leading jock on one of those stations. Cousin Brucey was the leading jock on one of the yeah, other yeah, stations. Yeah, remember Cousin Brucey, yeah, yeah. And what we could do is we just surfed from one station to the other, and we heard every one of those hits that was coming out of England for the most part. It was just a magnificent time. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to being the host of this podcast. With my band, Project Grand Slam, I've released 12 highly acclaimed albums, including Trippin', which went to number one on Billboard. And we've got millions of video views and streams. My latest album is called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It's been called Album of the Year by Indie Shark. I released this album in a novel way via five episodes of this podcast, and I'm pleased to say that those episodes have been downloaded over 50,000 times in more than 130 countries. I invite you to listen to the album. It's available on Spotify, and all the other streaming services. And I also invite you to check out all the episodes of this Follow Your Dream podcast. I've had so many amazing, famous musicians and others as guests on the show, all of whom have followed their dream to success. The episodes are fun and entertaining, and we must be doing something right because the podcast is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. How about that? So every episode is like taking a world tour. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening, and keep on rocking. All right, we're going to get backed up here if I don't get to that Songfest portion, because I want to play the hits that people know, and we're only going to play a little bit of them, but let's start with She's Not There. We talked about it earlier. You had that Iconic beginning with the bass and the keyboard, and you know the whole modal thing that you didn't even know you were doing on top of, yeah, on yeah. Top of the, the keyboard part.
0: Well no one told me about her the way she lied. Well no one told me about her how many people cried. But it's too late to say you're sorry. How would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she had the color of my hair.
1: Tell me your recollections and feelings about that song all these years later.
0: Well, I, I, I always sort of say that I had the. Arrogance and naivety of youth that you only have once. Um, and I thought when we were signed to Decca, it was a, a, on the back of winning a, a beat competition. Uh, and Dick Rowe from Decca, who turned down the Beatles, walked into our dressing room and said, "I'd like you to record a single for Decca." And we said, "Yeah, great." And we got a producer um, that was uh, a friend of a very good professional musician who was a friend of Chris's. Um, but he, he said, "I know a really good producer." He said, if I were you, I'd get him just to look over the Dick Rowe contract. So he said, yeah, okay. And then a few days later, he came back to us and said, I've seen the contract. He said, it's not bad at all, actually. It's really good. He said, there are one or two things I would change. He said, but do you know what? He said, I, I think you could have a producer rather than just go in there yourself and do it, you know. Um, and he said, I would love to produce you. And he had, he had produced a couple of hits. And, and, we, and we thought, yeah, okay. And he said, do you know what? You could always try and write something yourself. And and the only two people who, who listened to that or heard that were Chris White and myself. And we went away, and I wrote She's Not There. And uh, it was only the second song we, 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 that I'd ever written. But with the arrogance and confidence of youth, I thought, I can write something that's as, you know, I was thinking of Beatles that time. They'd just come out. No, it wasn't. It was two years after they come out. And I thought, I can write something as good as that. And, uh, uh, and Colin is going to sing it absolutely great. So we rehearse it. We were in the studio in two weeks' time. I said, we we'll really, really rehearse it. But there was one program called Jukebox Jewelry on the television. And uh, they played two minutes or a minute and a half or two minutes of each record. And they had a panel on there, different celebrities every week. Yeah. And to my horror, I found that the, the week they played She's Not There, which was a wonderful thing in itself because I, I couldn't believe it. I got on to it. One of the guests was George Harrison, and the Beatles were gods at that time, absolute gods. You know, it was like word down from Mount Olympus, you know. And I thought, oh, my God, if he doesn't like the record, I'm going to give up, and, and I, I, there's no way I can ever record anything else. And and I started watching the programme, and for about the first four records, or five records, it wasn't nasty, but he was saying, no, I don't really reckon that, and... I don't think really that's got much of a chance. No, 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 I don't, I don't think that's a hit. And then our record came up, and I thought, oh, my God. Uh, and then he listened to it, and in the end, not only did he say, well done, Zombies, but he said, that's really good. He said, and if that's their real keyboard player, that's great. And I thought, what? He just said that. <laughs> He's, that was George Harrison. You know, and I'm sure that gave us a kick you know, that started it being a hit record. And we were managed so badly that after that, they put out completely the wrong record. They wanted it out six weeks later, the second record.
1: I can imagine. Before, I got to tell you this, the little vignette. I had Jeremy Clyde from Chad and Jeremy on the show. And he talked about how he was on Jukebox Jury. And it was, and they played a summer song, which was their massive, massive hit, right? And Ringo was one of the panelists. And apparently, everybody gonged the song. Okay, everybody thought it was a miss. Although Ringo did say, maybe they'd like it in the States or something <laughs> like that. Well, there you go. All right. I want to go to your, your next big hit, which was Tell Her No, another extraordinary song. And this one, I always thought that Collins' vocal was so different and unique in this song and if she
0: should tell you come closer and if she tells you with a child tell her no 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 no
1: And what did you think about that?
0: Well, uh, I was going to say flippantly that maybe it was different and unique because he, he, he fell asleep just before it was time to do his uh, vocal. And, <laughs> uh, and when he sang, on one of the lines, uh, it goes, da 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 He forgot the words. And he did his vocal and he came back in. And And he said, "Oh I've just got to, I've, I've got to overdub that bit because I'm just going, love belongs to me, you know and it's, it's rubbish what he was singing, and the, and the producer said, "No, it's fine. Next track because uh, 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 that's what, how it was in those days. you know there was just no 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 sort of um effort really went into really concentrating and maintaining your you know the whole process uh, so that that was funny, but that's just an aside really.
1: I got to tell you, you just reminded me. Do you remember when Frank Sinatra did Strangers in the Night?
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: It was massive hit. And at the end, the last verse, he did this whole Scooby Dooby Doo thing, yeah, which yeah, again yeah. was not supposed to be part of the song. And either he forgot the words or he just decided to do the whole Scooby Dooby thing. <laughs>
0: Yes I know he famously he didn't like to do many takes did he Sinatra. So oh, if he good. felt that he'd done okay then fix everything else you know. Well it,
1: he had it was kind of a light touch if you will on the vocal. Yeah. And I thought that that just worked with Tell Her No. I really did. Okay, yeah. let's move to the your other massive hit in The Zombies which of course was Time of the Season. Is it time? Love runs high in this time, give it to me easy, and let me try with pleasure hands, to take you in this time to promise lands, to
0: show you everyone, is the time of the season for love.
1: There's a story behind that, I'm going to let you tell that story.
0: Well, the story of time and season. It was the last um, last session we had for the album, and we were writing the songs as we went along. So the the album was recorded over about I don't know six months or something. Even though it there was just basically one, or the very most two, two, three hour sessions for for each track. I remember I was sharing a flat with Chris White and and his friend also at the same time, at that time. Uh, and I remember saying to Chris, he was in the next room, and I remember going to see him and saying, I- I've I've got a song, you know, it could be the, our last song. Uh, and I said, do you know what? I think it could be a hit. I was the only one that thought that. I mean, no one else thought it. They just thought it was the last track to do on, on the album. Um, but we had Jeff Emmerich, who was recording that session, and, and he was a wonderful, wonderfully intuitive sound guy, absolutely wonderful. He was the Beatles guy, right? Is the Beatles guy. And I remember going in there and we recorded what we'd rehearsed because we rehearsed it over uh, several days and we recorded all that. Uh, But because the Beatles were the previous group in there to us, they they caused some things to happen technically. And and they, they caused it to be able to use more than four tracks, which was what everyone was using at the time. So we recorded, as we had done before, everything on four tracks. Uh, and, and then we suddenly found we had three extra tracks, and and because of what they made the technicians do there. Um, and so it gave us a little bit of spontaneity. So we, we'd rehearsed very carefully because we had to, we didn't have much time, but always there was a little bit of time for intuition and 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 momentary inspiration. So I remember Jeff Emery getting this fabulous sound on. The, the toms and the bass on a boom, 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 doom, boom, 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 boom. And it was just a backbeat, simple backbeat at that time. Do, 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 boom, do, 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 boom. And, and we th- all thought it sounded great, but I said we had half an hour left on the session. And I said to Hugh, our drummer, do you know what, Hugh? I said, I, I agree with you. I think it sounds great. And I love the sound of the toms and, and the bass together. It's just fabulous. I said, but... I can hear a sort of just before the backbeat and and, and uh, just after the backbeat. So instead of do, 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 I can hear do, 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 ah, you know, like that. Well,
1: I was going to ask you about that. How did that get in there?
0: Well, that, that, that was it. And I expected Hugh to go in and do it. But he said, no, he said, you know, it's your idea. You go in and do it. I said, you sure? And he said, yeah. And like a lot of the things that were the momentary inspiration on that album, it was just one take. We had half an hour left. I went and and Jeff, bless him, Jeff Emery, got a fabulous sound on on claps. I could never repeat that. I've tried so many times to repeat that sound, and, and it took him about ten minutes to do it. But he got it, you know. And and uh, and and then it, it came out. Eventually, it came out because uh, it was turned down by CBS in the in in the um, in the states. Clive Davis was their new. MD there and Al Cooper had just joined as the hot producer of the time he came over to the UK he picked up 200 albums and he went back to Clive Davis and he said I've picked up 200 albums but there's just one that you have to buy and I don't care how much it costs you've got to buy that album and Clive Davis said well we actually have it he said, but I've turned it down because I don't think it's really commercial. And Al Cooper said, you have to release it. And he was the new big star there. So I said, okay, we'll give it give it a shot. So they put it out and they put Butcher's Tale, which I think is a brilliant Chris White song, but not a single in a million years, and put that out and then put something else out. Uh, and then he said to Al, well, we've given it a shot. Nothing's happening. And, and Al Cooper said, you've got to give me my choice of, single my one choice of single is time of the season and clive Davis said you sure he said yep so he put it out nothing happened at first and then one dj in boise idaho started playing it and like a stone being thrown into a pond the ripples went out and gradually people from further away started playing it and then it caught fire
1: no, I have to stop you for a second, because I have heard that same story over and over and over again, how a record was picked up by a random DJ somewhere, you know, in a in a place that you didn't think about. And either they turned it over where they played the B side because they liked it better than the A side, or yeah. they just got behind it and it spread like a pebble in the ocean from there.
0: Absolutely. And it's so great that that could happen then. It very rarely happens now because records seem to have a two or three week slot, you know.
1: Plus the radio stations, first of all, nobody listens to radio anymore the way that they used to. And also everything is with the gatekeepers and, you know, the, the music is all programmed. It's not up to the jocks any longer what they play. So that's an era that you were part of and you were fortunate to be part of that just doesn't exist any longer.
0: It's crazy that it doesn't. But, you know, I quite understand how the business people always take over. But I remember there was another time when FM first started and and when the DJs started broadcasting in in FM. And I remember hearing the Crosby, Stills and Nash album for the first time because we were listening on the radio and the jocks were really enthusiastic. They really knew what they were playing and what they loved. And they played a Crosby, Stills and Nash track. And the guy afterwards, the, the DJ said, do you know what? He said, I'm going to play the whole album. So he, on the radio, he played the whole uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash album, or at least the one with Our House on it. That, that it might, I think it was the first one. Um, and he said, at the end of it, he said, do you know what? I love that so much, I'm going to play it again. So he played the <laughs> album twice. And, 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 and the extraordinary thing is, but there's never been so much contact and or enthusiasm from audiences when they weren't logged into a very strict business controlled playlist. But you know, and that's such a pity.
1: It is, it is, because back then, you're right, it was more organic between the audience and the disc jockey and the bands and the artists. It was a much different era. I was on college radio in the 1960s and it was free form, like you're describing for the FM stations. We could play anything that we wanted. And if you had educated jockeys, they would get the audience into things that they didn't even know existed. Okay?
0: Absolutely.
1: Anyway, different era. All right, I want to move on. You formed Argent and you had that big, massive hit. Hold your head up.
0: Tell us about that. In those days, it was on the hip to have singles. It, we went through a little period in the UK when it was on the hip to have singles. So we were recording a new album, and as became the the whole thing with us, we were we were going on tour, and we hadn't anywhere near finished the album. So the record company said, "We have to put something out. We're going to put out an EP." So they put three tracks out. They put the long version of "Hold Your Head Up" on there, which was about Oh, God, um, I think it was about nearly six minutes long or something like that, with a three-minute organ solo in it. And it came out, and, and of course, radio didn't play it except for one DJ called Alan Freeman, and he had a show on BBC every week on a Saturday, and he played it every single week for about three weeks, and it wouldn't go away. It, it was nibbling Underneath the the 50, you know in the u k, but quite a bit under the 50, maybe seventy or something like that and and then we went to Holland as part of our tour. while we were away, we got a phone call from CBS saying, "We've edited your record, and we put it out as a single." and we thought, "No, it's not hit to have a single we, we don't want it out." But what they did was cut out the three minute organ solo, and the thing became a huge hit, but uh, uh that's, that's how it came about, really.
1: That happened a lot back in the day. They would take, you know, the, whatever the records were and they would chop them into kind of radio friendly. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple of things that that happened to. If you remember the song In a Gata De Vita, Yeah, okay? yeah, absolutely. It had like a 50 minute organ solo. Yeah, yeah and yeah, they, yeah. they chopped it down to, you know, like two or three minutes and that worked. You know, that became the hit, right? And The Doors had something like that, too. I think Light My Fire had a very long solo section on the album. They cut it down for the radio. And that's what you hear, of course, for the last 50 years.
0: But the one thing that I loved was the fact that after our record became a hit, Hold Your Head Up, it became hip again uh, to some degree for for bands like Led Zeppelin or whatever to, to dare to release singles again. So I was really pleased in the end. That, that 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 happened
1: <laughs> you were a leader huh i love that all right so you got this brand new album coming out you and colin and the the, the new zombies and we're going to play little bits of two of the songs uh underneath my voice love you while i can dropped, reeling, and stupid. A little bit about this situation.
0: Well, I mean, I'm I'm really knocked out in a way because um we've gone back uh, to what we did with Odyssey and Oracle. We've made a completely self-produced in-house album in my studio, and it's what we wanted it to sound like basically. So uh, you know, w- with with no reservations basically, although some things can always be better, you know, but at the same time, we were knocked out to have it out. And the one thing that we've got a single that goes to radio proper coming out on the 31st of March. But the record company, who loved the whole album, wanted to put out two streamed teaser singles first, just on streaming. And the first thing that they put out was Drop Reeling and Stupid. Uh, And to our amazement, radio over here has started playing it to some degree. It's done 180,000 streams already in in just two or three weeks and uh, I, i'm not saying it's going to be a massive hit but uh, the interest in it is is just huge and, it, and it's and it's made a couple of uh, charts not the national charts yet or whatever but the reaction to the beginning of it is of the album is just so lovely i'm so pleased
1: isn't that nice you know it's so hard to maintain a career over a long long period of time All you guys back in the 60s, I'm sure, you know, I had this discussion with John Lodge when I had him on the show. And he said when he was 19, his friends asked, what are you going to do when you're 21? Okay. everybody thought it was going to last for a couple of years at most. And I've heard the same thing from everybody. But here it is, you know, 50 or more years later and your music still endures and you have great fans. And I'm sure it's multi-generational as well. How does that feel?
0: It really is multi-gen. The thing that knocked me out when we started making Headway again, you know, we've been back together since uh, around the year 2000. But in the last 10 years or so, it's gone like that in the States particularly. Absolutely like that. And when we first came over, capitalising our own tours in this incarnation in the early 2000s, we played in Georgia. There were 12 people there. We play in Georgia now and we'd get 2,000 i mean it's it's extraordinary really and and it's and it's just great because we've always embraced the idea of doing it because we want to keep creating and keep getting enthusiastic about creating new music and we almost always get a young component in the audience along with people who I'm very pleased to say have followed us all, all the way through but we always get a young we, we get young indie groups come to see us we get a good proportion of the audience usually Especially in America, who are young, and you get a huge amount of energy back. And 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 while the tedium of touring is still harder than it ever was, the actual hour and three quarters or whatever it is on stage is the most rejuvenating thing because it's it's like being eighteen again, and there's just as much energy going out and coming back.
1: That says it all right there. We have been speaking with Rod Argent, the great Rod Argent from the Zombies and from Argent. I. Love all the stories and the backstories that you've been telling. I love all your music, and uh, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast, Rod.
0: Well, thank you. And I'm going to go home and and look out one of your albums.
1: There you go. And I'm going to play you now the song that we started out with in this uh, episode. It's one of my new songs called Waiting For Me. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode thanks for listening to the follow your dream podcast make sure to subscribe rate and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode you can connect with robert at robert at follow podcast.com and you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com but i still couldn't see if you i <laughs> see.